Welcome to the inaugural Res Publica Politics podcast. I'm Tabitha Boyton, your editor-in-chief and host of today. Res Publica is a new digital magazine focused on current affairs and politics. For more information, check out respublicapolitics.com. This podcast will endeavour to provide you with an honest, open-minded and balanced introduction to complex topics and issues. We ask that every listener considers each episode in its full context and with its deserved sensitivity. The Biden administration has inherited a tremendous number of challenges following the 2020 presidential election and subsequent capital riots. These are arguably even worse than the challenges Obama faced amidst the backdrop of the 2008 global financial crisis. The ongoing pandemic has proven to be a significant challenge alongside America's foreign policy, particularly with regards to China. Today I am joined by the impressive Anna Tan, a postgraduate at the Department of War Studies and the School of Global Affairs at King's College London, who will answer some truly essential questions about US President Biden's foreign policy with relation to Asia. To stay updated, please do follow us on our social media sites at Politics and do rate, review and share us. Anna has previously worked on multiple development aid and peace building projects at the American Red Cross, the UN Development Programme, and the Policy Institute. She is currently affiliated with the Winter Flower Group and Bridge Burma. Her research interests are wide-ranging. Though her academic research is focused on conflict and democracy in fragile states, she is also passionate about contemporary American and Chinese politics and their respective foreign policies to Asia. Anna's work is frequently featured in Strife and elsewhere at the School of Security Studies. Thank you again, Anna Tan, for joining us. To start off with, do you think that Biden can truly unite America? Is this even a realistic goal? The US is so deeply divided. Biden's an agile centrist, and I think he's got very um, functional working relations with some pretty right-wing Republicans like Senators Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham whom I think very uh, mainstream center-left Democrats like Nancy Pelosi and others find it very difficult to work with. So I think his standing in, in that sense in the Democratic Party is quite solid compared to, say, um, uh, Hillary Clinton, I suppose, um, on how she interacts with the um, the extremities, I suppose, like with the right-wing, like super right-wing people and the super left-wing people like Bernie Sanders, for instance. And Biden is known to at least listen to Bernie. And I think it really explains when Bernie said that he's got a better working relationship with Biden than Clinton. Um, so I think in, in a very hyper-polarized um, era in America... This is perhaps the only sensible option because the other alternative is to either go left or right and you can't you can't only govern half of the country. So I think democracy only works only so as much as there's enough unity and considerable consensus on mostly critical, important public policy matters that America is facing right now. What we've seen over the past decade or so is that the Democrat comes in the Republican overturns everything done by the Democrat and the Democrat comes in and overturns everything done by the Republican. And it's just, you know, it keeps going back and forth like a, a vicious cycle and it's not, we're not getting anywhere. 
and America's democracy decaying because of that, because its its federal structure, uh, and just ends up being a playground for partisan politics and than much else. And the other thing is the media diet of America. I think in the U.S., perhaps we we need to see an outlet like the BBC, a media that is a public service, instead of just having left wing or right wing news. I mean, news is just news, but. You know, it's it's important that you know the left、um, just don't end up convincing the left and the right just ends up convincing the right, and you just have two different countries in one country and red states and blue states, so they say. And so I think Biden really needs to consider、uh, on that aspect as well、um, to have serious regulations on the distinction between free speech and fake news. Or what Kelly Ann Conway refers to as alternative facts. If Biden truly wants to reunite America, I think he should think about how should how to do media reform, which must really go beyond being able to convince a few Republican senators and congressmen and women to get on board with the bills he needs to pass. So I think it's not a very unrealistic goal to have, but this is not something Biden could unilaterally muster up. His functional relations with Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham, and on the other side of the spectrum, stronger liberals like Bernie Sanders, truly shows that he's a listener, and I think it makes him unique. And I also think that it played a role in him winning the twenty twenty elections, and the fact that he is capable of achieving this、uh, means that we should we should give him some time. I'm certain that he's not the only Democrat who. Shares a stance、uh, that worked under the the Obama admin- administration, who are very willing to help him achieve his goals. I I spoke to someone who worked under the Obama administration itself,、um, and he he told me he works with Mitch McConnell. So I I I do think that you know Biden's not the only person who really appreciates. The the power of the understated power of centrism, I suppose,、um, because、uh, a country too divided is very difficult to govern democratically, and we we really shouldn't forget, or perhaps like Bill Maher was saying, we shouldn't mistake that you know the、um, the crowd that in you know sieged、um, the Capitol in in January is let's not mistake them for the seven million. People and seven million plus people that voted for Trump. I mean, it's it's a number higher than 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 what we had in in twenty sixteen. So if it weren't for COVID, at least as in last year, I think you know I were we might be looking at a second term Trump presidency, and I don't think America's institutions are capable of handling that that shock, like Nancy Pelosi was saying. Um, so I think we really, we really need to consider that you know we can't. At least democratic governance in America should really leave orthodoxy in in you know the sort of stuff that we've been seeing over the past twenty years. Do you think Biden's ability to unite America will have consequences on his foreign policy regarding Asia? That's a very important question because I think domestic sentiment and public opinion is a very underappreciated, influencing factor 
in foreign policy. I think firstly, it's useful to go back to how American influence in the world has declined over the years, especially during the end of the Cold War in the 1990s with the, fir- with the fall of the Berlin Wall that came after the uh, third wave of third wave of democratization in the 1980s pretty much welled up the sense of euphoria in the west that this ideological battle is over and this timely publishing of francis fukuyama's end of history thesis that stated that the west has won is quite damaging to the collective uh worldview and perhaps the morale even within the u.s and the western foreign policy circles because to paraphrase kishore Mapubani, a Singaporean civil servant and an academic. Fukuyama's end of history thesis was so damaging because it put the West to sleep. Right at the right at the point when China and India were waking up. And coincidentally, in the same year that China entered the World Trade Organization, the 9-11 attacks occurred, and which basically uh, distracted and subsequently um, entrenched the West in endless Middle Eastern wars which were incredibly extortionate. And so at a time when China's rising economically, you know, the US is still engaged in in wars in in the Middle East. And so this is also why it ties back to my arguments about America's democracy. This um, practice what you preach component is one that is truly underappreciated in in the many components, um, when we're talking about the efficacy of democracy, uh, the efficacy of diplomacy, sorry, in the 21st century. Western countries really need to understand that if they don't respect their institutions, then who would? And this is something that Republicans really need to recognize as a party, not just moderates. And the fact that the conspira- conspiracy theorists like Congresswoman Marjorie, Green, Marjorie Taylor Greene Being in mainstream politics and being a lawmaker is truly alarming. Democracy and freedom of thought, freedom of conscience, is uh, what we know as academia are perhaps the best part of the West, notwithstanding exceptions, of course. And perhaps this kind of academia or institutions that only China could perhaps only dream of having. And the US knows its strengths. And... And so do other Western countries. And the decline of the West is only inevitable, only if we let it. So we have to use the institutions and not take for granted the institutions that we have. And if we continue, of course, being frivolous with with our strengths instead of cherishing and cultivating them, then the decline of the West might just be inevitable. In light of the 30-year anniversary of the Shanghai Stock Exchange, do you think that we will see the Chinese economy becoming less open over the next 10 years? China's actually back to a good level of normality post-COVID, while the US and Europe are still reeling from the effects. So I think it's an important thing to consider firstly. How countries respond to COVID effectively and how they cooperate or otherwise will no doubt determine the economic outlook as they move out from COVID. So at the moment, the IMF predicts a 5.5 growth on the global GDP in China is already ahead of that figure, ahead of the global average growth, followed by the US, the UK, EU, Brazil and Japan. 
So I think in terms of the landscape of the global political economy, I think we're an interesting crossroads as the US now for the first time in the continuation of Trump administration's goal to encourage American-made products is serious about materializing its protectionist policies. Protectionism, bear in mind, had, had been critical for the Asian miracle effects that we've seen with Asian tigers. So I think that could produce a seismic change in China's economy. But more importantly, China's economic influence in the Middle East and Africa are still fairly under-discussed by the mainstream media. So, in short, it has other economic alternatives to stay ahead of the curve, despite the changes in America. And America hasn't led the global economy for the past five years. And its protectionist policies will likely create some domestic stability at home, fingers crossed. But I don't think it could directly and suddenly result in America getting ahead of the curve again or make China's economy less open, quote-unquote. China still, it still has a lot of economic damage control to do post-COVID, of course. And so on top of the changes in America's economic policies, I think China will, in fact, try its hardest to stay as open and maintain its economic influence. Do we expect Biden to reluctantly accept UN Security Council reform? For example, giving India a veto for having a billion odd people? Or perhaps changes to the G7? How do you think China will respond? Regarding the UN Security Council, it's not impossible, um, especially now in with the current situation in Myanmar. Um, recently, uh, there's been news that Biden has discussed with India regarding um, the Indo-Pacific security matters and also regarding how they could respond to the situation with the coup in Myanmar. And Biden's foreign policy will be expected to have some sort of orthodoxy, but I think his administration and himself is aware that the IR, international relations, political landscape post-COVID, would require America to really think outside the box and it can't continue using the old rusty instruments that it's used for for the past 20 or 30 years. And former President Obama frequently stated in the past about the UNSC or UN Security Council reforms, and I wouldn't be surprised if Biden desires the same thing. To be honest, it's a little early to say that because although the incentives are quite clear, such as having the same China concern with regards to regional defense and security matters, even democracy. I think the U.S. can still achieve those objectives through bilateral and multilateral means outside of the U.N. Security Council. And India's just started its first non-permanent term in the UN, U.N. Security Council this year, just like Norway is. So the U.S. might perhaps wait and see how India performs during this term. It's fairly obvious to, to even a layperson that India is not the first country Western countries will consider using as a leverage or find common ground when it comes to human rights issues particularly. It might look at the G7, perhaps. So it would be naive to consider the promotion of democracy and human rights as mutually exclusive goals. The main dilemma for the US to consider is this. India may be useful in counterbalancing China at this hour, perhaps comparable to the warmer U.S.-China relations encountering Russia in the 60s and early 70s. But India's position as an ally vis-a-vis the U.S. is not as clear-cut as it is to, to say for, for instance, say countries like South Korea, Japan, or other countries in Western Europe. 
So vouching for India would be a huge investment for U.S. diplomacy and on the U.N. system, and it will be too obvious a an anti-China thing than much else, to which China could veto. You know, we have to remember that the veto powers are still there with the P5. Um, the more likely prospect would be that India's non-permanent term to be extended, perhaps through um, through the voting system in the UN, UN Secretariat, UN General Assembly. It's probably safer, a much safer bet for the US as well to have its to vouch for its traditional allies such as Canada uh, to be on the Security Council of of the P five than India hypothetically. What effect will the Biden-Modi relationship have on the US-China challenge? That's a great question because many senior commentators from the Western foreign policy circles understand the hilarity of this situation at times. What I mean by this is that the old Obama foreign policy advisors like Samantha Powers, Ben Rhodes, remember Modi's ardent support for the Trump administration and Trump himself. There are likely to be fairly involved in helping the Biden administration as well as be it directly or indirectly and they're not going to be very historically amnesic. I think Biden will be very pragmatic in the strategic importance of of, of India, for instance requiring cooperation in global health and regional security matters whilst at the same time understanding that India, at least under Modi, shows us not the most reliable partner just yet. You can think about this like how it reminds us about how Turkey relates to the West, for instance, when it comes to Russia. NATO is having regrets about Turkey given its recent behavior, while the EU is breathing out a sigh of relief for not letting it in. I think the recently appointed Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, has extensively traveled in the region, so he's likely to have more involvement with India matters than Biden will whose priority will involve dealing with Russia, I suppose. They they still have yet to deal with uh, a lot of the things that they found out from the Mueller report and the Russian involvement with the US elections in 2016. And the talks are already in process and it's quite evident that through Blinken, the US will seek to be strategic with India as a gate perhaps to the to Indo-Pacific matters and promoting American interests definitely to counterbalance China. Just a few days after Blinken was sworn into office, the bilateral talks with India involved Blinken stressing on the usage of Quad, which is a quasi-official military alliance that involves the two countries as well as Japan and Australia. I think this is the extent to which the US plan to work with India, but I think it's unlikely that India and America will become the best of friends anytime soon. Do you think the way in which the Sino-American relationship evolves from here could redefine the world order, the future of human rights and democracy and diplomacy? I think the health of America's democracy cannot be decoupled from its influence in the world, and I think the same applies for the other countries within the Western liberal orbit. The fact that we still have most Republicans supporting people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, a congressional lawmaker that believes or at least vouches for 
The most preposterous conspiracy theories is very alarming. The eleven Republicans that recently took part in the bipartisan vote to remove Green from all committee roles in response to this is definitely some progress, but not enough. I think the party is scared of losing that extreme MAGA "Make America Great Again" Trump voter base. Trump voter base that accounts to a significant portion of the American population. Remember that seventy plus million votes that turned out to be, you know, very powerful in the twenty twenty elections. The fear, I think, and the fear of losing that magnitude of support, I think, leads them to neglect that this is in fact counterproductive of whatever foreign policy anxieties the Republicans may have about China and to some extent Russia as well. This neglect, I think, is poison to America's standing standing in the world. For America to maintain its influence, I think the world needs to respect them. There's no doubt about that. Be it its allies or adversaries, and I don't think, in that aspect, America has done well over the past four years. I feel that most of the Republicans care more about holding that grip of power that that voter base to ensure that they can maintain that that MAGA, you know,、uh, attention and support. Then about America's democratic integrity. And this is not to be bipartisan at all, and、uh, to be partisan at all means. This is just the truth, and this is also why the Chinese are saying that America is going on a suicide mission, quote unquote, when Trump was pulling out from multilateralism. How it recovers from COVID and the Trumpian damage of Sino-American relations will determine whether America shrinks or learns in the importance of how its domestic demo- democratic integrity is tied to its influence in the world. It needs not to repeat the same mistakes that pivot to Asia policies did as well during the Obama era, meaning that it needs more strategic diplomacy with China. Neutral global goals like climate change and public health are entry points to cooperation with China, which will make its foreign policy goals, like human rights and democracy, a little more achievable. Pivot to Asia instead of combining. You know, neutral goals. It it combined defense objectives in Asia with human rights and democracy, which highlighted China's insecurities and make the whole thing a lot combustible, I suppose. And and a lot of Asian allies and partners were quite reluctant to to be in, along the same lines with it. And the fact that China's cooperation is necessary for the success of some of America's foreign policy goals is an underappreciated. Component of diplomacy. So I suppose I want to end this off with a Henry VIII joke in diplomacy: that it is all about execution. It overrides intention. America needs to recognize that, and so does its allies. I think we're at a turning point where, over the past two years, in particular, we have seen a massive backsliding of democratic freedoms, as recorded by the Global Democratic Index (GDI) by the Economist in 2020. And this is this is the lowest year on record for democracy since the creation of the index in 2006. Whether that number continues to go down or recovers is history that's still yet to be written. <laughs>